For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, from StoryCorps in Tucson, Ron Barber and his wife Nancy remember their experiences on January 8, 2011. Visit a project to restore one of the oldest buildings in one of the oldest towns in Arizona. Film writer Christy Scheel presents an overview of the Jewish International Film Festival. And I'll talk with choreographer and director Tamar Rogoff about one of the festival's featured films, Enter the Fawn. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Most residents of Southern Arizona remember where they were five years ago, January 8, 2011, the date of the mass shooting that took six lives and wounded 13 others, including then-Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords. Ron Barber, Giffords' district director and later her successor in Congress, was shot twice in that attack. In November, when the StoryCorps recording booth was in Tucson, Ron Barber and his wife Nancy visited to share their vivid memories of what happened. It was just a wonderful Saturday morning, and I was getting ready to go grocery shopping. I had my keys, my purse on my shoulder. I was at the back door, and the phone rang. I stood there for a minute and thought, oh, it's probably not interesting. I'll just let it go. And then something stopped me, and I went back, and I picked up the phone. And there was a woman on the other end, and she said, is this Nancy Barber? And I said, yes, it is. And she said, I have something I need to tell you. She said, your husband's been shot. And I felt like my whole world stopped at that point. I said, is he still alive? And she said, he's still with us. Well, what does that mean as I'm sinking to the floor? Still with us. Okay, doesn't sound great. She said, is there anyone with you? And I said, no, I'm going to call my daughter right now. And she said, well, don't tell her what happens. She'll be too upset to drive. And I said, fine. So I'm sitting on the floor and I call Chrissy. And she was a couple blocks away. She actually had been thinking of going and visiting you and Gabby that morning because she hadn't seen Gabby for a while and she was going to take her sweet little one, Elliot, to say hi. I said, Chrissy, it's Mom. And she said, what's wrong? And I said, your dad's been shot. And she just like, oh, my God, I'll be right there. And she said, how are you? And I said, I'm just sitting on the floor. And she, within minutes, she was there. I said, call your sister. And then she called Jenny. And as we were driving up Campbell, we got a call from Gabby's chief of staff in D.C. to say, you were still alive, Gabby was still alive, and you're on your way to the hospital, to the University Medical Center. There were nine of us who were taken there that morning, nine patients, all of whom had been shot. Um, Gabby, the most serious uh, young, Christina Taylor Green, was basically dead at the scene, but they brought her in in the hopes of reviving her. It was just must have been horrific as you were all gathering that morning. Well, we came around the back entrance 
because Chrissy worked at that hospital. And so we went around, and um, she had somebody at that point come and take Elliot for the day, and um, everyone was arriving. I went inside, and Daniel Hernandez, who had been assisting Gabby, was standing outside, and I remember just looking at him with his sweater covered in blood. They escorted us inside, and we got there, and it was my daughter Jenny, uh, Gabby's mother and sister, and I just kept saying, do you know we have any information about my husband? And they just kept saying, no, we have a lot of people in there. They don't have IDs on them. We're not sure who everyone is. And someone heard someone call me Nancy, and she goes, Nancy? Is your name Nancy? And I said, yeah. She said, oh, your husband's in there calling for you and calling for you. And at that point, I just, just like, you're alive, you're talking, that's all I needed to know. And I was so relieved. And I said, can I see him? And she said, no, he's on his way to surgery right now, but here's his, here's his wedding ring. And I grabbed it and I put it on a chain around my neck. And then I, then you were in surgery for almost three hours. And at one point, the doctor came out and said, um, your husband may lose his leg and we need to get your permission. And I said, I don't care what he has to lose, just don't let him die. And he said, fine, he went back in. We had no idea what condition you were in. We knew you'd been shot in the face, and we knew you'd been shot in the leg, and we knew that they were working to save your life. After you had your surgery and you were in ICU, they came out and they said, you you can only have two people go in. So remember, Chrissy and I went in, we had our arms around each other, and we walked in the room, and I stood at your bedside, and I looked at you. You had this one small little square four-by-four Band-Aid on your cheek, and I went, whoa, okay, you're there, your head's there, your face is there, I can handle this, and then, you know, of course, at this point, I didn't even look at all your other things, but a nurse walked in, um, this wonderful, wonderful nurse. And Chrissy looked up at him and she said, Mom, we don't have to worry anymore. Dad has the best nurse here at the whole hospital. He was my teacher and he'll take care of Dad. You can relax now. And um, He was great too. I remember that um, I wanted to leave the hospital to go to John Roll's funeral and he took a day off to accompany me because Mm -hmm. I needed a lot of assistance. But... But the nurses and the staff generally were fantastic at UMC. And, uh, you know, I have nothing but the highest praise to give to the doctors. Can you imagine what it was like to have nine of us uh, at various stages of uh, injury and uh, almost dying in some cases, being brought in at the same time? We're so lucky that we had that uh, trauma center in Tucson. Otherwise, I can't imagine uh, what would have happened. I think more people would have died. And, you know, when I woke up and I was in the recovery area, I think I was in the ICU at that point, uh, the first person I I saw when I opened my eyes was you, and then the second person was Chrissy, and I just felt so relieved uh, that uh, I was okay and that you guys were there. Um, I felt like the Michelin Man. I had bandages wrapped around practically every part of my body because I was injured in the leg, and then they had to graft a vein from the other leg and on and on and on. But, you know, as, de- as the next few days uh, ensued, I, we realized at least the beautiful uh, way in which the Tucson community responded to the shooting. 
when I see Gabe's mom, and I see her often, and she's lost her son. Um, you know, someone's lost a daughter. Other people have lost husbands and wives that very sad day. And I almost lost you. You know, you, you're my soulmate. And um, that would have been very, very, very hard. So yeah. I, we were given another chance. Not going to squander it in any way. You know, it does change your perspective on life when you nearly die. And uh, I know that um, given the amount of blood I lost that I almost died twice while I was lying there on the ground at the Safeway. And then again when I got to the hospital, they had to rush me into surgery because my blood pressure was so low. So I know uh, that I've been given an incredible gift, a second chance to do what I need to do for you, for the family, and for our community. I'm very grateful for all that you guys have done and put up with as I went off to Congress and was away most of the time. And uh, I just mostly just I love you very much. I love our daughters and our grandkids. And the love that we have for each other is what sustained us through this. And I know it will until uh, we're not here anymore. Mm -hmm. I think we're very lucky. I mean, we met when we were teenagers. I don't know very many people who met their future mates when they were teenagers and are still together many, 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 many years later, 48 years later. Um, we're really fortunate that we grew together during all of that time, that when the changes happened, we were able to work through those changes yeah. with each other. And the biggest challenge of all was that, what, that terrible day, and uh, here we are, not only uh, surviving but thriving, you know. We just heard Nancy and Ron Barber, recorded in the StoryCorps booth in Tucson. More local StoryCorps stories are available at azpm.org. More remembrances of the January 8th shooting can be seen on PBS 6, Friday at 6.30 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. on Metro Week. One of the oldest buildings in Tombstone is getting a facelift. Shefflin Hall was the town's prestige theater when it opened in the 19th century, and the big adobe building has been part of life in Tombstone ever since. Exterior renovation work began on the theater last fall, and Zach Ziegler traveled to Tombstone to see how history is being preserved. Shefflin Hall is unmistakably a big part of Tombstone's history. The brother of town founder Ed Shefflin built it, it opened in 1881, and if you were standing on its porch five months later, you would have heard gunshots ring out from the gunfight at the OK Corral half a block away. The Masonic Lodge that takes up part of the building had as its first master a justice of the peace who exonerated Wyatt Earp, his brothers, and Doc Holliday for their part in that gunfight. You know, we see Shefflin Hall uh, as a rare piece of history. That's Bill Harmon, district engineer for the Arizona Department of Transportation. There's not much of this kind of thing around. Shefflin Hall is really the largest adobe structure in the southwest that's still used. ADOT doesn't strike many as the top candidate for restoring historic sites. But when the department wanted to redesign Tombstone's main road, State Route 80, to make it more pedestrian friendly, it meant working at the foot of the old building. Harmon says the department used it as an opportunity to correct work done according to old ways of thinking. Back in the early 1960s, the old Arizona Highway Department came through to do highway improvements 
and left uh, the highway without any provisions for pedestrians. So ADOT decided to make improvements to aid those that are on foot. They're removing roadside parking and widening sidewalks. Bill Barlow is a Tombstone Town Council member. It is uh, an improvement to narrow the street, uh, slow the traffic down, and uh, create a safer zone for pedestrians. And on Shefflin Hall, they're replacing the porch that was removed in 1909. They're also peeling back the stucco at the base of the adobe walls and removing the bricks that had deteriorated over 135 years. The old sidewalks didn't drain rainwater into the streets. They instead allowed the water to seep into the lower portions of Shefflin Hall's walls. Steve Truncali is a former city council member and helped write the grant proposal that is paying for much of the work being done on Shefflin Hall. These buildings weren't really built to uh, last forever and uh, you're always at war with the elements to try and keep them intact. A crew of masons is examining the lower bricks, digging out those that had corroded and replacing them with new, historically accurate ones. They're doing the work by hand and with the exception of some power tools, pretty much how it would have been done when the building was built. It's the kind of work Brian Tejas's company specializes in. Making uh, adobes how they were made hundreds of years ago, um, and doing the correct repairs to buildings. Tejas is a third generation mason from Tucson. He's routinely amazed at how well adobe holds up considering the simplicity of the bricks. This is over 130 years old, it's still standing. Uh, so even though it's pretty much just a, a basic dirt soil mixture. To add to the authenticity of the work being done, workers built the adobe bricks at roughly the same spot where the original bricks came from in the 1880s. That land is now used for livestock grazing, and as ADOT's Bill Harmon says, that caused a slight delay in the process. While they were making the adobe, uh, one evening uh, some cattle got in to where the adobes, the fresh adobes, were uh, baking in the sun and walked on the, the adobes. Many of the bricks were broken and more had to be made. That uh, would not be typical for a modern construction site, but I bet 130 years ago it happened once in a while. So we're trying to recreate all the mishaps too. <laughs> the attention to detail that is going into restoring Shefflin Hall is painstaking and it's not cheap. Truncali, the former city council member who helped get the project going, says restoration cost is an issue that has long plagued Tombstone. We only have 1,380 uh, permanent residents in this town and uh, it doesn't really, it, uh, even with the historic district, it really doesn't generate an enormous amount of uh, capital to do restoration projects. That represents a problem for the town, since the people the town's historic district brings are its lifeblood. Town Councilman Barlow. The only business we have is tourism, so it's very important that we maintain our infrastructure and maintain our historic buildings as a draw and we can provide something for the people, the tourists to come to see. Since tax dollars can't cover the needed work, Tombstone often relies on two other sources of money. Both can be seen in the last two restorations of Shefflin Hall. The current work that's being done with grant money and the last restoration done in the 1960s. That's when Detroit-based attorney Harold Love came in and bought some of the town's most important historic operations, including the OK Corral gunfight site, the Tombstone Epitaph newspaper, and Shefflin Hall. 
Former council member Truncali picks up the story as it pertains to Shefflin Hall. And he had it completely restored and then he deeded it back to the city, which was, it was just like a gift. It was great. The Love family still owns and operates the gunfight site and the epitaph. And with grants for historic renovation work becoming less common, the town's relationship with the Loves has led Truncali to joke about finding benefactors in unusual ways. We were going to put an ad in the financial newspapers back east uh, looking for a sugar daddy, somebody with a lot of money that wanted to spend some money to help an old town. And while the ad was never placed, it doesn't stop him from making the pitch again. I don't know if this part of it will get into the... Uh, into the news or not, but if there's any sugar daddies out there that have some extra money, they want to help an old western town, we're, we're up for it. So be it by grant or wealthy benefactor, the work continues on one of the last spots that keeps the Old West alive and looking as it did 130 years ago. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Zach Ziegler. You can see pictures of the restoration work being done at Shefflin Hall at azpm.org. Old age, depression, and the looming shadow of the Holocaust. Each of these could provide deep subject matter for a film. But what about using all three as the basis for a comedy? Here's film writer Chris DeShiel. Film lovers in Tucson are fortunate. The city is rich with film festivals. In fact, we have nine. And the first one on the schedule every year is the Tucson International Jewish Film Festival presenting works from around the world by Jewish filmmakers, and now celebrating its 25th year. This event has steadily expanded and improved since its founding in 1991, attaining a high standard of excellence in its choice of films. I've attended quite a few of these fests over the years, and I can tell you that I've never been disappointed, which is saying a lot. Among the films I look forward to seeing next week is Advanced Style, a documentary about seven older women in New York City who are distinguished by their completely bold, original styles of dress and personal appearance, which are matched by their singular personalities. Another highly anticipated movie is A Borrowed Identity, the latest from Israeli director Aaron Rickless, whose films often explore points of commonality between Jews and Palestinians. This one tells of a gifted Arab boy who is accepted into a prestigious Jewish boarding school, and the challenges that ensue. I'd like to especially single out an unusual film from Uruguay called Mr. Kaplan. Written and directed by Alvaro Breckner, the story takes place in the 1990s and concerns 75-year-old Jacob Kaplan, played by Hector Nuera, whose parents engineered his escape from Nazi-occupied Poland during the war, and whose status as sole survivor of the family invests his life with a sense of great responsibility. Now retired and with two adult sons that have their own families, Mr. Kaplan is haunted by the fear that he has never really accomplished enough to justify that sense of purpose. He's at the stage in his life where he's forgetting things, people are speaking louder so he can hear them, and after a car accident, his family has decided he shouldn't drive anymore. They hire the son of an old friend of the family to drive Jacob around. Wilson Contreras, a hapless ex-cop who spends most of his time drinking beer and playing pinball, 
in a delightful performance by Nestor Gozzini. Then, an article about famed Nazi hunter Simon Wiesenthal sparks Mr. Kaplan's interest. He begins to study the reported escape of Nazis into South America, including Uruguay, and a chance comment by his granddaughter alerts him to a suspicious elderly German man running a fish shop near the beach. Jacob enlists the driver, Wilson, to help him investigate this possible war criminal. Mr. Kaplan, in case you haven't guessed, is a comedy, and it's amazing how Breckner manages to navigate this potentially risky material without being insensitive. The unlikely pairing of the elderly man and the puzzled sidekick is very funny, in some ways reminding me of Don Quixote and Sancho Panza. At the same time, the picture also achieves moments of poignant sorrow in its evocation of survivor guilt and the title character's confrontation with his own mortality. Mr. Kaplan was Uruguay's submission for the foreign language film Oscar last year. It's playing on Sunday the 17th at the Jewish Community Center, the festival's founding organization and the site of most of the festival screenings. There are many other good dramas and documentaries in the lineup, more than I have time to mention. You can find a link to the complete schedule on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Chris DeShield. Another film featured in the Jewish International Film Festival is Enter the Fawn, a documentary directed by dancer and choreographer Tamar Rogoff and filmmaker Daisy Wright. The film follows Rogoff as she begins working with Greg Mosgala, a young actor with cerebral palsy. The goal was to train Mosgala as a dancer and create a performance piece in which he would play the role of a fawn from Greek mythology. The long hours they spent in the studio together proved to be transformative. When I spoke with Tamar Rogoff, she discussed where her passionate interest in movement and dance came from. I would say really, really, almost preverbally. My father was a doctor, and his patients had rheumatoid arthritis. I was keenly aware growing up of different kinds of bodies, and I was born with flat feet, so they said, of course, send her to dance class. But besides going to dance class and seeing people with, you know, different, differently abled bodies um, and watching my father actually relate to the human body, uh, I, he played the piano. He was a, besides being a doctor, he was a musician. So supposedly from the age of two, I would dance around the living room. And uh, so I can't really remember a time when I didn't feel like dancing was really um, close to me and part of me. You know, I had so much of dance at a very young age that I tried to quit around the age of 16 and go to college, um, which is not what we were supposed to do as dancers. We were supposed to get out there and join companies. So I tried to veer away from it and never, never could really get away from it. I kept coming back. It seems like you really lock on to the people that you're dancing with and that you're choreographing. I almost see physical connections, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, your description fits right into my perception of your work in that it is a very physical thing. It's a very... I, I think of myself almost as uh, physically empathetic more than most people. Like even on the beach or something. I'm immediately looking at their structure, at their energy in their body. Like I can read, I read bodies. And every time... I do a piece as a piece of choreography or work with somebody or teach or dance myself. It's all sort of in the service of learning more about 
the body. Well, through my body, through other bodies. I mean, every body has a different story to tell. I guess because it's always been such a basic form of communication for me. It's the way that I really love to relate to people. (laughs) Tell us who Greg Mazgala is and what is the story that his body tells? Well, the beginning story that, that I read in Greg's body was a story of struggle against all odds. Like he could run and he could leap, and, but it was something that he was fighting for. And, um, and I think when we got to the studio, when I decided that he would dance for me and be in my company and we would do this project together, I think what we did is we looked at all the confusion in his body. I mean, the basic idea of cerebral palsy, what happens is the brain is sending signals that are getting muffled. They're not going to the places you would expect them to go. And so there, he, was, <laughs> he was always compensating for a nervous system that wasn't doing what he wanted it to do or what we know of our own. Like if we say walk, our body walks. It's... If he says walk, his body doesn't walk. Neither of us understood cerebral palsy, but we went directly to his body and directly to my body. We started comparing. I started to give him language. So I would say, well, what does it feel like to be in your body? And, you know, he wasn't able to tell me for the longest time. And then I had to figure out, well, what does it feel like to be in my body? How would I describe what I feel? So we decided to, you know, take down the normal boundaries. I wasn't a doctor. He wasn't a patient. Um, We were in this kind of wonderful space where we could explore and figure things out for ourselves, and which we did for months upon month upon month, hour upon hour upon hour. He and I both noticed that he thought of his body in two halves, um, which is why I thought of the character of the fawn, the mythological fawn, who is man from the waist up and goat from the waist down. And his body was telling us, you know, that it had two different realms entirely. Once he learned the names of things in the body, we said he declunked. He stopped thinking of himself as two halves, but as a body made up of amazing, miraculous things. Tamar Rogoff will visit the Jewish Community Center to lead a movement workshop next Friday at 4 p.m. Enter the Fawn screens on Sunday, January 17th at 7 p.m. You can find a link to the Jewish International Film Festival at azpm.org. We're presenting the first-ever live recording of Arizona Spotlight, January 24th, at the El Casino Ballroom. The guests will include author Lydia Otero and storyteller Molly McCloy, plus the debut of the new community micro-storytelling project called Demolo. The event is free and open to the public. You can find information at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes. The show originates from the AZPM radio studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.